Uh, my name is Zane Parsley. I am the elementary minister here at Dallas Bible Church. Um, and I just want to... someone just whistle? I just want to jump in today. Uh, part of the reason being why is because as the elementary minister, there's always just this kind of tug of war between me and Aaron of, dude, you got to finish on time. I'm holding crying babies. You have to finish on time. So if I don't finish on time today, I got no grounds, right? So let's jump in. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and pray and bless this time. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you love us just the way we are. I, I don't know what to do with that truth, Father. I don't get that. But we love you. We anticipate great things from you. So open our eyes. Holy Spirit, be on us in this moment. May we glean insights from your word that we have not seen before. And may we worship you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, y'all ever, uh, you ever wonder why some books are so popular? I, I do this uh, occasionally. I'll, I'll, I'll check the bestsellers in the book racks. And I'll think, why is this, why is this selling? Like, wh- why does anyone want this book? And I think what we read as a culture is pretty indicative of what our values are. Right? We tend to investigate, we tend to exhume that which we care about. Um, so every once in a while, I'll hit up the New York Times bestseller list, and I'll just kind of see what's floating around and just ask the question, why? So this past week, I went on the New York Times bestseller list for, for self-help books. Boy, there's something for you. For, for self-help books. And, and here was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Reese Witherspoon, Whiskey in a Teacup. Now, this is number one. It came out this past week. And, and when we asked ourselves the question, why Reese Witherspoon, whiskey in a teacup is number one, that ain't a hard one to answer. Because we all love Reese Witherspoon, right? She's a diva. She's fabulous. Legally blonde. Anyone seen it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want to read that book. I want to know what's in that teacup. You know, there's an investigation there. We love Reese Witherspoon. It makes sense. It appeals to our culture. If you want to learn about Reese Witherspoon, you buy that book. If you want to learn about Reese without her spoon, you buy another one. Please, somebody help me out. We, we will be finding a new church next week, Tori. Just let, we can't come back from that. Uh, that's a book that came out this past week, though. That makes sense. The, the new releases are typically top of the list. But the more interesting ones are the ones that have been around a while. Check out this one. Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Anyone here ever read that book? Yeah, quite a few of us have. Folks, this book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 261 weeks. That is massive. That is five years. It's sold over 10 million copies. And so we ask ourselves the question, why? Why is this book so attractive to us? Why? Uh, do we want to hear what the five love languages are? And that's easy, right? We all want to know how to love those we're close to. We want to know how to express and receive love from others. And Christians especially want to know how to do this. So we buy this book. It's appealing to us. It's something that our culture wants, especially as Christians. But the book I want to talk to you about today is, is similar. It's, it's nearly as successful as five love languages. It is ubiquitous in Christian culture and in secular culture, and, it, and it's this. Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. Anyone here familiar with this book? A couple. When I say Joel Osteen, that's a loaded term. I said it in the first service, and a few people went, oh. 
Some of y'all are going to have strong reaction to that. Some of you guys think he's a heretic, about 30%. Another 30% probably love the man, you know? And then somewhere in the middle, the other 40% or so don't really care. He's sort of a polarizing figure. But there's one thing you can't deny about Olstein. Dude sells books. This book has been so successful. It has sold 8 million copies. That is huge for a Christian book. It has had Bible studies, video series spawned after it. It even has a board game. You've played life. Have you played your best life? Probably not. I kind of want to, honestly. It sounds fun. Your best life now. Why is this book so attractive to us? Let me read to you the, um, the Amazon description of this book. Maybe it'll make sense. Pastor Joel Olstein asks everyone to examine what he or she really believes. Why is this important? Because we will become what we believe. Our beliefs will prove either a barrier or a vehicle as we strive to go higher and rise above our obstacles and live in health, abundance, and victory. That's attractive. That makes me want to read this book. I want to live in health, abundance, and victory. I want to make sure my best life is right now. Joel, help me out with that. You know, I, I'm turning 28 in December. That's younger than almost everyone in this room. I realize that. And I have the microphone. <laughs> but as I'm closing, uh, closing in the gap to, to that Rubicon of 30 years old, I'm noticing a similar conversation taking place with my friends. And for those of you who are older, you can probably add to this conversation. But time and time again, uh, people are coming to me and they're saying, Zane, you know... <laughs> It's not what I thought it would be. You know, I had these dreams for myself in college and it haven't panned out. You know, I'm, I'm not married. I thought I would be. Or I'm married and it's not what I thought it would be. Or my family isn't what I thought it would be. Or my career isn't what I thought it would be. I, I thought I would have achieved more. I thought I'd be more successful at this point in my life. And I'm not. Have I missed something? Am I living my best life now? Did I somehow miss the boat? I think all of us can relate to that. I can relate to that. It doesn't always feel like this is our best life. We see what the world says is successful, and we want that. And that's not what we see in our own selves. Well, today Jesus is going to talk to a group of people that are dying to have their best life now. And they're not. They would fit in that group of people that may have missed the boat. They would fit in that group of people who feel like they have missed out. Those who are not having their best life. Now, what do we hold on to? What does Jesus say we grip onto when our life doesn't meet the standards of cultural success that have been set before us? How do we hold on to God when we are not having our best life now? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning in your Bibles, um, just kind of catch us up to speed if you're new to Dallas Bible Church or if you've been gone for a little bit. We've been journeying through the book of Matthew. So Matthew is uh, Jesus' tax collector disciple. And what Matthew is doing is he's creating an account of Jesus' life and works for a primarily Jewish audience. So when you read Matthew, think Jews. Think familiarity with the Old Testament. Those 39 books, Genesis through Malachi, Matthew is writing a follow-up to those. So he takes his material and he says, here's why you can trust that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and, and you have missed him. 
catch up with me. Furthermore, he's saying you can trust him to bring you righteousness before God. So, so far we've talked about Jesus' kingship, his his fulfillment of Davidic prophecy, that he is the fulfillment of the Davidic line, that he is reenacting what Israel failed to do in the temptation in the wilderness, and he is doing it correctly, and that he is choosing disciples, choosing 12 of his kingdom, like the 12 tribes of Israel, to bring his new kingdom now. And Matthew chapter 5 is going to lead us into a whole new section of teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount describes what God's law looks like, what the fulfillment of God's law will look like in the new kingdom. And he starts out with a passage that we will be familiar with, 5, 1 through 10, the Beatitudes. Before we dig into that, though, you've got to stay with me. Stay with me. Stay with me. This is important. We have to understand the philosophy of the time Jesus is teaching to. So Jesus gathers poor, impoverished, not having their best life now, Galileans around him. And he teaches to them under this context. They have been told all their lives by a group of men named the Pharisees that when you do good things, you get good things. If you keep the law, if you keep the commandments, God will reward you in earthly blessings. And that's Kind of true, right, church? We know that when we obey God, we are in some ways rewarded with good things. But the Pharisees took this to the next level, to the point where they would look at a rich man and they'd say, Ah, you are rich. You are privileged. You have so much. And I can tell because you have so much that God must really love you. And you must really be obeying him. You are following his law. Good for you. Keep it up. And then simultaneously they come over to the poor man and they say, Ah, God doesn't love you. You have clearly disobeyed him because you are unable-bodied, because you are poor, because you are impoverished. You have sinned before God because when we do good things, we get good things. That's what the Pharisees taught. So Jesus surrounds himself with a group of people who have not had good things who have been told all their lives that you are not loved by God because you are not obeying him. And here's what he says to them. This is beautiful. Seeing the crowds, verse 1, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, those of us who have been around church for any amount of time, these are familiar words. We know these as the Beatitudes. And sometimes the passages that we are the most familiar with in church are the ones we know the least. These kind of just wash over our heads. Hey, we know this. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We've, we've heard this before. But do we know what it means? Don't let your familiarity with this passage blind you to the extremity that Jesus is teaching on. Don't let it blind you to the words of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about this. I think to fully understand it, we've got to do a little bit of deconstruction. So look with me, if you will, at that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Okay, first thing we got to unpack, what does that word blessed mean? We hear that all the time. God bless you. Someone sneezes. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag too blessed to be stressed. Hashtag bless the mess. Hashtag bless Randy and Julie Hess. All these things. <laughs> we, we hear this word everywhere. It's ubiquitous, right? Blessing, blessing, blessing. What does it mean? Well, when Matthew uses the word blessing, he uses the Greek word markarios. And, and this word is literally translated happy is. Happy is. So happy is blank. But it's really more idiomatic than that. It, it, it could better be translated probably, um, this person is to be envied. Or this person is privileged. Or this person has the advantage. He has it right. Um, what he's saying is extreme when we look at that. So he gathers around that group of people who have been told their whole lives, you don't have it right because you haven't lived up to the world's definition of success. You who are not living your best life now. And he gathers them around who have been told God does not love you. And he says, no, 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 no. Poor in spirit, you have it right. You are to be envied. You are the privileged ones. Not the rich man. Not the one that the world says is successful. Not the one living his best life now. But, but you who are poor in spirit, you are privileged. Everyone should wish to be you. You are envied. He says, blessed are. And then he fills in that gap with the most unexpected word for the Pharisees. Patokos. It's Greek. It means poor. It means impoverished. It means the underclass. It's actually an onomatopoeia. So what am I doing when I go, Ptokos? I'm spitting, right? People think it comes from that disrespect for that underclass, that poor. Jesus says, blessed are those who everyone hates. Blessed are those who the world looks at and says, your value system is wrong. Mine is right. You are unsuccessful. You have it right. And then the coup de grace, Jesus comes in with the end of the sentence. Blessed, makarios, happy are, to be envied are, the poor, patokos, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is that promise that the Pharisees have been looking for, right? All those promises in the future, 39 books, Genesis to Malachi, God is bringing a perfect kingdom, and that's ours, right? Because we're doing what's right, God. We're keeping the law. We're successful. We're, we're having our best lives now. That's ours. Jesus says, no. No. These people... These who you have told God does not love you, those are the ones who are getting the kingdom. This is extreme. This is big. This is a repudiation of everything the Pharisees have taught. What Jesus is doing here, stick with me, he's describing a group of people who look like wimps and losers to the world and saying they have it right. Do we see that in our own culture? Yes, we do. What does Dallas tell us is successful? Power, manipulation, fame, money. These are the things that are successful. These are the kingdom priorities we look for. When you're looking to assemble a team to take over the world, you're looking for a rough dude. You're looking for a person who can get what he wants. And Jesus comes to you and he says, No, that's not who I'm looking for. Those aren't my priorities. I'm looking for those who are poor in spirit. So what do you hold on to when you don't fit into that group that the world says is blessed? What do you, not hold, what do you hold on to when you're not having your best life now? Well, Jesus says it right here. 
in the Beatitudes. Take a look with me. There's a, an incredible pattern here. The first thing we hold on to is God's future promises. We hold on to God's future promises. Look with me. Anytime we read scripture, we want to read for repetition. We want to read for patterns. Remember that. You're cracking open your Bible, 8 a.m. Look for patterns. Look for repetition. Right, here's one right here. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. Will, 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 will. Future tense, future tense, future tense. Do you see that? These blessings are grounded in God's future promises. And what Jesus is describing here is, is the ability to withstand something difficult now, not having your best life, feeling like you've missed the boat, the ability to withstand that, to not engage in unrighteousness and enjoy something better in the future. Psychologists call this principle delayed gratification. Um, delayed gratification, the ability to wait now for a later, greater reward in the future. Uh, for those of you who have ever had an AP psychology class in high school or an intro uh, to psych class in college, you may be familiar with the uh, Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Anyone here familiar with that? A couple nods, a couple hands. Um, yeah, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Here's what they did. In 1960, a psychological researcher by the name of Walter Miskell decided that he wanted to study the effects of delayed gratification, waiting for something better, on children longitudinally. So what he did was he took four or five-year-old kids, and one by one he would take them to a research room, and they'd set a, uh, they'd set a plate in front of the kid that had one solitary marshmallow on it. One marshmallow. And the researcher would tell the kid, okay, um, here's the deal. I'm going to step out of the room for a little bit. Uh, I'll be gone for about 15 minutes. You are welcome to do whatever you want with the marshmallow I've given you. But know this, if you wait and you don't eat it now, I'll bring you two later. So the researcher would leave the room and the kids would just be subjected to the most terrible form of torture. Take a look. <laughs> this poor guy. Look at, look at him. Just yeah, fondling it, crying. That's tough when you're a kid. There's a marshmallow right here. You don't want me to eat it? Okay. So they'd wait, they'd wait, they'd wait. And they'd test their ability to practice delayed gratification, waiting for something better later down the road. Well, what they found was the kids that could wait for the second marshmallow, when the researcher came back in the room with two, generally fared better in life down the road. So they had higher SAT scores. They, um, they were more successful generally in their jobs. They, they just tended to do better. But that's not the reason I bring up this experiment. What the first experiment measured was a child's grit and ability to wait. What I'm more interested in is a study that came out two years ago from the University of Rochester. This study, instead of just measuring a child's ability to wait, it measured the child's trust in the researcher. And what it found was that Stanford was terribly skewed because it didn't take that variable in place. So here's what they did. They would bring some kids in the room who had a trusted relationship with the researcher and others who did not have a trusted relationship with the researcher. And so they would do the same experiment and they would see how long the children could wait. Here's what they found. Get this. This is huge. The children that had a trusted relationship with the researcher meaning they thought he was good enough to bring back two marshmallows, thought he was trustworthy with that, they waited, this is statistically more than significant, four times longer. 
That is huge. They could wait four times longer than those who didn't know or trust the researcher. Why do I tell you this, church? Because it's my conviction that most of us don't believe the promises of God because we don't believe that he is good to deliver those two marshmallows. Do you follow me? When we read, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, do we believe that? And I ask myself this occasionally, do I actually believe in the promises of God? Because they're pretty extreme. Like, do I actually believe that someday God is going to bring a perfect kingdom to earth where we will sit and reign with him forever? I'm not talking about harps and clouds. I'm talking about mud between your toes. I'm talking about frost on your windshield. And I'm talking about a perfect and glorified world. Do we believe that? Do we believe that someday he will make all relationships right? That that person who I deeply wounded and hurt in an irrevocably way three or four years ago, that I will actually be able to hold hands with her in the kingdom in perfect fellowship? That person in your life that you cannot imagine even seeing at Kroger? Someday you will hold hands with them and sing God? That's the promise that God is giving. Do we believe that we will live in a glorified world where every joy and every possibility is 10 million times better? That I'll ride a glorified horse across glorified West Texas and eat glorified beef jerky? (laughs) Do we believe that? And the answer, if I think we're honest, is no. The reason being, we don't focus on the one bringing the marshmallows. If you summon your grit to endure a life that is not the best life now, and you say, gotta do it, gotta do it, gotta do it, gotta be righteous, and you focus only on that, you will fail. But if you focus on the one who is good to bring his promises, Jesus, the Son of God, that's a different story. And that changes everything, right? We focus on God's future promises and it changes the way we live. We see this in the Beatitudes. Take a look with me. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Church, believing in God's future promises changes the way we mourn. It changes the way we mourn in a couple different ways. First, we mourn harder. A lot of times in the church, we have done a bad job embracing this. But for those of us who know that someday we will live in a glorified world, and that's what we were meant for, you look at life now, you look at cancer, you look at disease, you look at illness and divorce, and you know that's not how the world was supposed to be. You say, Zane, that's how the world is. Yes, but it wasn't intended that way. And so we sit in pain. We feel that tension in our gut. Because it points us to something better. And Jesus says, those of you who mourn, you get it. You're to be envied. Talk about a kingdom. I see this all the time in politics. Folks, I'll be honest, I don't know who to vote for anymore. You vote for one guy and he oppresses the poor. You vote for the other guy and he he oppresses the unborn. What do we do with that? We mourn it. Because that's not how things are supposed to be. That's not what God made us for. God made us for a better kingdom. We mourn harder than the rest of the world, but we also mourn as people with hope because we know that that world is coming. We don't mourn in despair. 
We don't mourn in nihilism and existentialism. We mourn as people who know that someday a greater kingdom is coming and we can rejoice in that. But in the moment, now we feel the tension in our stomachs. And Jesus says, mourn. You who are not having your best life now, mourn. But one day you will be comforted. It changes the way we interact with power. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 6. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek, for they will inherit the earth. Do we value meekness as a culture? (laughs) Heavens, no. When I think of meekness, I always think of that scene in The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy comes before the Wizard of Oz and says, um, I am Dorothy, the small and meek. And I remember watching that as a kid and reading this verse and saying, whatever that is, I don't want to be that. (laughs) We don't want to be meek. When we think of meek, we think of weakness. Well, what is meekness? Meekness is essentially power under control. It's having the power, the ability to seek something else, but trusting God, following him instead. It's like this. When when you're a little kid, your dad could whoop you. Your dad could beat the crap out of you, but he doesn't if you had a good father because he's got power under control. And when we trust in those future promises, it changes the way we see power and the way we live our lives, right? So when our culture values take, 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 brutal, 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 get it done, it values that because we see life as temporal, as passing, as we have to get it all now because we're not going to get in the future. You got to get you got to get your house, you got to get your car, you got to get your lawn, you got your family now because you ain't going to get another shot. That's why the idea of a bucket list is so anti-kingdom. Folks, the blessed kick the bucket list. They do. Because they know that anything we seek, anything we desire now will be perfect and fulfilled in the future. Right? You don't have to take, take, take. You don't have to sacrifice You don't have to compromise your values to achieve in this world. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who love their neighbor. Anything the world tells you you have to do to achieve success that sacrifices loving your neighbor, you can kick that out of the way. Blessed are you. You are privileged, you who understand this, because you get God's future promises. You know this world isn't all there is. We don't just hope in God's future promises. That's not all the Beatitudes are. It's, it's hard whenever we're not living our best life now, when we feel like we've missed the boat, when we feel like we're missing out. It's really hard to just believe in some far-flung future thing, right? But God doesn't leave us there because God has given us something else to hold on to, and that's his past faithfulness. What do we hope? When, what do we hold on to when it doesn't feel like we're living our best life now? God's future promises, God's past faithfulness. There's another pattern in this scripture that I want to call your attention to. Take a look. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, are the meek, are those who hunger and thirst, are the merciful, are the peacemakers, are, 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 are. Pleasant present tense. What Jesus is saying is not, you are blessed in some far-flung future world. You who are not living your best life now. He's saying you're blessed now. You're envied now. You're privileged now. Why? Because you wait in a couple years and you see what I do. You just wait and see what happens. Anyone ever hunger and thirst for righteousness? Man, 
that's my life. Anyone ever do a bad thing that you've done 10,000 times before and say, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? Anyone ever struggle looking at their life and say, if I can only be righteous before God, then I'll live a good life. If I can only obey him better, if I can only X, Y, Z. So we fill in the gaps. We, we come to church. We volunteer. We tithe. If only we can be righteous, God will love us. I remember as a seven-year-old boy laying in my bed, I'd just gotten saved and thinking there's no way he loves me. There's no way. Look at all this I've done. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's the thing, though. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this past work, this past faithfulness, declares you righteous now. You are righteous. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. You who are weary of struggling with sin, you who feel as if that is holding you back from your best life, Listen to these words. You are Christ's righteousness. God sees his wonderful son when he sees you. And when we trust in that past work for us, when we trust in that faithfulness, it changes the way we live our lives. Again, take a look at these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It changes the way we interact with money, right? It changes the way we interact with poverty. Uh, anyone who's ever been on a mission trip, some of our youth went to um, Guatemala this past year. Uh, Gary just went to Bangladesh. Uh, can relate to this. I remember being 16 years old and going to Costa Rica. And um, we went to these like Nicaraguan refugee villages and, and you know, we did a VBS. We sang songs. And, and the big takeaway for me and what typically is the big takeaway is just how happy these people are, right? These people that have nothing that the world would look at and say are losers, are joyful in Christ. And you come home, and when you're 16, you're disgruntled with the world, and, you know, you're really woke, and so you talk about how America just doesn't get it, and all this, and I was like some 15th century feudal lord in my voice. I don't know what that was about. Uh, America just doesn't get it. And, and poor people, they understand that happiness is not found in what we achieve. Happiness is not found in success. It's found in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You have all that you need to live in joy. You who are not living your best life now. God's Holy Spirit lives within you. You trust in that future promise. You trust in that past work. And you have all that you need. Do you see how that changes things? How it changes the way we look at the world. It changes the way we forgive, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy is hard, right? But when we trust in that past work, it becomes way different. Mercy and forgiveness are hard because at their core, they're faith issues. What you're doing when you forgive someone is you're saying, you hurt me. What you did was wrong. You can't make that up. It's forever going to hurt. But I take that. I own that. That's a faith issue, right? And the only way you can have that faith is when you believe in that past work that takes all sin and sits it under the feet of Christ. When you believe that in the future you will be vindicated in all things, you have been deprived of nothing. Christ will vindicate you. It changes the way we forgive. changes the way we live our lives. So 
You who have been told you are losers. You who have been told you are unsuccessful. You are to be envied. And you hold on to God's past faithfulness. You hold on to his future promises. Now here's the question I have, though. And and I'm going to just go ahead and ask the band to come forward while we're mulling over this. These traits are not what our world values, right? The Beatitudes are not what we're looking for in terms of success. And so I ask myself the question, why? Why is it that Jesus chooses to prioritize these things? He's picking people that others wouldn't pick. I remember in college, I used to play basketball with a friend of mine. His name was Taylor Woods. Taylor was like five foot seven, white guy from rural West Virginia. Didn't look incredibly athletic. But uh, Taylor, every time, would come to us, and we'd gather around. He'd say, hey, fellas, if any of you get to pick teams, pick me last. Pick me last. And sure enough, we'd pick teams. I'll have Evan, I'll have Tommy, you know, I'll have Aaron. And, and Taylor would always go last. Because here's what I haven't told you about Taylor. Dude only had one hand. He was born without his left hand. So you look at Taylor Woods on the basketball court, and he's not the person you will value. He's not the person you will choose. I'll pick the one-handed guy. But here's what we knew that the world didn't know about Taylor. Dude could ball. Like he was fast. He was quick. He had handles. He had the shot. He had a left-handed shot, even though he didn't have a left hand. (laughs) Draining threes with that wrist. It was insane. We knew something about Taylor that the rest of the world didn't know. He wasn't the first pick. So why are these qualities Jesus' first pick? Here it is. You ready? I'll give you the answer. These qualities take faith. You want to be poor in spirit? You got to have faith in God's future promises. You want to be merciful? You got to have faith in God's past work. And that is what God is looking for on earth. Faith is what gives us righteousness, not goodness. So when Jesus looks out and he says, blessed are you who mourn, you are privileged, because you are getting a softball. And you can hit it out of the park with faith. Because when you believe that he is bringing those marshmallows, right? When you bring that he's good enough to do that, when you think that he is trustworthy, oh boy, you've got something coming your way. So for those of you who are not living your best life now, Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives hope. God loves you just the way you are, as Gary said. Show your faith. Trust God's future promises and his past faithfulness. Let's pray.